Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, and I know that for some of you it's a difficult Mother's Day, so we just want to bless you wherever you're at in that. We've had people who have lost children this last year. We've had people who have lost mothers, and we know that this is a, a mixed time for you, but we just bless you today. We just ask that God would come to you with peace and rich memories and beautiful memories and just be a part of your life in this special day today. So we've uh, started a series called Backyard Gospel. Because there's one thing that we really want to be good at as a church. We want to do it really, really well. And it's what Jesus says is the most important thing in all of life. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And it's to love your neighbor, to love others as yourself, to love others really, really well. And that's what we want to do. Jeremy talked last week about how God shows up in our lives by how much we love other people and love others. And because we are so loved by him, it gives us the opportunity to bring more of his grace and more of his peace to other people, to step out more in loving other people in relational ways and rather than stereotypical arm twisting and, and kind of weird ways. Today, we're going to go a little bit more into depth in an area that I really am excited about. It's the power of story. So I need you to help me start this out today to verbally respond to some things going on that I'm going to talk about. I want you to verbally finish some of the classic introductory lines to some of the most famous stories. So it goes, once upon a time, there were three bears who lived in a forest. We all know the end of that story. Once upon a time, there was an old mother pig who had, yes, or about this one. Now, this is the one I thought everybody would miss, but people got it in the first service. Call me. So many of you are so much better at remembering the books you read in, in high school and college than I am. I didn't remember that one, Moby Dick. It was the, and it was the, yes, Tale of Two Cities. Now in those days, the decree went out from, we got that one. And a long time ago in a galaxy, yes. So there's a point to all this. We as human beings are story-shaped creatures. Why is that? I think it's because stories are God's ideas. God is the one who created stories and is telling a story to the whole world from the beginning of eternity to past to eternity future and all in between. God is unwinding a story at medic's climax in Jesus 2,000 years ago. And it's no surprise when we look at the Bible that it opens up with a classic unmistakable story signature. The very first words in the Bible are in the beginning, right? Right from the start. This opening scene, God begins with a story. In the beginning, God. And God references himself over 30 times in the opening chapter of the Bible as if to declare this is his story. This is ultimately about him. He is both the author and the lead character in the story. In the beginning, he created and all of it was good, he said. In the beginning, he made people in his image, and people being made in the image is, is the basis upon which we get to love other people through, because every person is made in the image of God. 
In the end, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Everything will be restored to its original goodness, and we are invited to play a role in that restoration work that He is doing and that story He's writing in creation. Creation ends with a new creation. It begins with the image of God. It ends with a revealed glory of God. It begins with the perfect communion with God. It ends with us ruling in eternity with God. It begins, God's story, it's the greatest story of all time. But I don't think a lot of people would say God's story is the greatest story of all time. Because they may think the gospel, the story of God is boring. It's just not good news. Maybe that's because God's story has often been communicated over simplistically saying Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, but if you don't follow his rules, you're going to burn in hell forever. Now, I know that none of us have really shared it quite that way, at least not the second part probably, but it's essentially what we have often communicated as followers of Jesus as the core of the message. That's not likely to sound like good news to people, is it? Too many have reduced the gospel story to a story that is received as condemning and viewed by others as condemning and anemic. And we need to refocus the story to more accurately communicate who God really is within all of that. See, God's story is not pale and lifeless. It's the kind of story that grabs headlines. Jesus was interesting, profound, inviting, compelling, relevant, timeless. So many of our phrases that we use that we don't even know are actually attached to Jesus' stories and things he said 2,000 years ago. The gospel is not just a set of statements we give mental assent to. The gospel is not just an eternal fire insurance policy. The gospel is not a means of forcing people to follow a moral code through scare tactics. At its core, the gospel is not a set of rules to live by. It proposes a calling and a person to live for and to love. See, part of the problem with our stories is that we have reduced the story of God to something like this. Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus died to make it right. And and that's true. We know that's true, right? And if we're going to say it that sort, that's probably the way we're going to say it. But what that does is though it acknowledges sin, right? That's correct. and And it points to redemption. But the problem with reducing it that small and that into that statement is it still makes the story centered around us. We forget who came before and who who, who is for all of eternity, God. We get to be part of God's grand story, a story that is far better than we can write for our own lives on our own. John 9 actually tells the story of a man who was born blind and Jesus healed him. And the religious leaders who were frustrated with Jesus demanded that this man try to settle their theological questions about Jesus' identity. And instead, the man responded to them saying whether, whether he is a sinner or not, because the, the Pharisees were trying to get him to say he was a sinner because he healed him on the Sabbath and it didn't follow their rules. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. When Paul was dragged before King Agrippa to defend his faith, his his teachings, he didn't give a sermon. He told the story of meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road. When Paul explained his ministry to the church in the book of Galatians, he told the story of how he encountered Jesus. He didn't defend himself with theology, but with a testimony, with his story and with God's story in his life. 
See, when we remember how the story begins and ends, this whole grand story of God, it enables us to begin finding these connections points with our own individual story where God is a part of that. See, when we remember the author and the lead character, when we remember the author and the lead character of the story of life, we better understand our place in life and our role in life. Because the story God is writing, it's the story of bondage to freedom. It's the story of isolation to reconciliation. It's the story of darkness to light. It's the story of good getting rid of evil and restoring wholeness in our lives. And the story is told over and over and over and over again in the Bible and in our lives as well. The entire book of Deuteronomy was actually retelling of the story of, of, of the Israelites moving from bondage to freedom. And, and Joshua then, before he goes into the promised land with the people, he actually goes back and retells that story again. And then a couple hundred years later, after a really dark time in Israel's history, the priests rediscover the book of the law in the temple. And King Josiah actually has it read aloud, the same story to the entire nation of Judah. And then a few decades after that, Ezra reads this story out loud to the exiles returning from Babylon. The story of God reminded people who they were, whose they were, where they were going, why they were going there, and how they were supposed to live in the meantime while they went there and once they arrived. That's the power of story. The story reminded them that they were no longer enslaved, but they were free, that they were no longer isolated, but connected. God was with them. They were no longer walking in darkness, but in light. God was not far, but He was near. In the New Testament, the early followers of Jesus pointed the continuing story of God as evidence that Jesus was God in the flesh. When Stephen, the first martyr, was questioned about why he followed Jesus, he didn't respond with theology. He responded with the story of God. He briefly summarized the whole story of, of God from Abraham, Joseph, and Moses all the way through the Bible to how Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. We find it in Acts 7, which I think leaves us with some questions today. How well do we know the story of God? Uh, more personally, how well do we know the story of God in our lives? How God is writing the story in our lives and what that story is. And are you able to see the story of God in other people's lives around you? See, our ability to tell our story actually stood out to me more the last couple of weeks over this particular verse that we're going to focus on a little bit today. It says this, they triumphed over him. Now, what did they triumph? What this, this hymn is actually a personification of evil and, and all the bad stuff that can think of life. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, a testimony is a report. It's a story of who God is. But let's give a little background on the verse, this verse from this last book of the Bible. Uh, Revelation starts with seven letters to seven churches, and then it gives us a little glimpse of what heaven is like. And then in, in chapter 12, there's this, this is kind of apocalyptic moment that's recorded in the verses right before the one I just read to you. And they say this. It says, Then I, so the I is John, the author of, the, of Revelation. He's the closest disciple to Jesus, Jesus' best friend. Well, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So now, let's pause for a second. The enemy 
talked about in this passage is given a variety of names and personified names in Scripture. He's the great dragon. He's the ancient serpent. He's the liar. He's the deceiver. In this particular passage, he is the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the, the followers of Jesus, the people in general. This is the reminder for us in a very practical way that we have a very real enemy. But his tactics haven't changed at all. What the accuser wants to do is to remind you of everything you have done wrong over and over and over and over and over again so that you don't have any emotional or spiritual energy left to dream about what God wants to do in you and through you in life. The accuser wants you to doubt that you are part of God's story. He wants you to forget how God is inviting you to be a part of His story of redemption and freedom. See, we have to daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes minute by minute, be aware of the internal dialogue going in our minds. We often end up cooperating with the accuser's thoughts. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how they, how they figure this out, but, but research has estimated that we have about 60,000 thoughts a day run through our mind. How they get that, I have no idea. But the Cleveland Clinic was part of it, and they said actually 80% of those thoughts are negative. That means for most of us, we have 48,000 negative thoughts run through our mind throughout the day. We need to be well aware of what is being said in our heads throughout the day. And see, I think it's important right here to actually make a distinction between two things. There's two things called condemnation and conviction that the Bible talks about. Because if we don't get these things straight, we're going to stumble over this a lot. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And yes, conviction has the feeling of guilt associated with it that we will feel, but it is feeling guilt over unconfessed sin, something that we have not dealt with, something that we've not owned up to and repented before God and, and others about. And God knows that if we don't deal with it, it will just be like those pains and symptoms that we tend to ignore that just only get worse in our lives. See, God's conviction is actually a wonderful thing. It is evidence that God hasn't given up on you. It is evidence that He loves you. It is evidence that He wants to help you walk through whatever you're facing in this moment and get you to the other side of it in a healthier way. On the other hand, condemnation is feeling guilt over one of two things, over sin that you've already confessed, it's sin that's been forgiven and forgotten. Or it is feeling like you are, aren't able to be truly forgiven. That you aren't worthy of being forgiven. That you are worthless and not able to be forgiven. Romans 8 says it this way about condemnation. It says, there is therefore now no, how much? No condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so we've got to be very careful to tune out the voice of the accuser who would speak thoughts and words of condemnation to us all throughout the day. But let, let's zoom back in on, on, on verse 11 of chapter 12 again. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It says they triumphed over evil, all the bad stuff in life. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, I want to spend most of our time today focusing on that latter part, the word of our testimony, or we could say the word of our story. 
But to fully appreciate the second half, I think we need to spend a little bit of time on the first half of that statement. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you're new to the Bible, triumphing or overcoming by the blood of the Lamb, that just sounds strange, right? The author is actually referencing back to John the Baptist uh, seeing Jesus near the Jordan River, and he refers to Jesus saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he's saying is, in the Jewish tradition, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He came to fulfill the law. He came to put an end to the sacrificial system that had been practiced for hundreds of years to receive forgiveness of sin. And and Jesus establishes a new covenant with some new ground rules. But, But in order to understand this, in ancient times we understand the ancient covenant process. You didn't make a covenant in the Old Testament or in that time. You cut a covenant. So it was this complex ritual. Today we use uh, paper and ink to make our covenants, our legally binding contracts, our things we promise to do. In many ancient cultures, two people entering into a covenant would exchange robes and belts and sometimes weapons, and even sometimes they'd exchange their last names. But that covenant was not signed, sealed, and delivered until they cut the palm of their right hand and they clasped the hand of the person they were making the covenant with so that there was an exchange of blood. Now... Ooh, I know that sounds really gross, right? But that's how a covenant was cut. It sounds unsanitary. It sounds primeval. But it was the sacred ritual. And the scar on their hand was a sacred constant reminder of what they had promised to do with their life. It was evidence of a covenant that was sealed by blood. So let's fast forward to Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, Thomas... One of the disciples doubted whether Jesus had been resurrected. He just couldn't believe it. Uh, And, and, you know, he said, until I see him, I won't believe it. And and what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say when when he actually sees him? Now, there's a layer of meaning that's actually lost on us if we don't understand that how covenants were cut. Jesus shows Thomas his wound in his side, his, his wounds in his hand. And he says, Thomas, put your finger in my side. Put your hand in my palm. See my hands? See, this isn't just Jesus providing physical evidence of a bodily resurrection, that it was him. This is Jesus establishing a covenant with a scarred, bloody hand. Let me, let me take us back even further to the covenant ritual. After exchanging uh, robes and, and belts and weapons and, and names and blood, they would often plant a memorial tree and they would often eat a memorial meal. The most important parts of the covenant meal were bread and wine. I think we can obviously see communion and the, 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 the elements and that in here. Bread represents flesh and the wine represents the blood and the spirit. Even back then, marriage in that day was, was a covenant. So partners would tear bread in half and feed the pieces to each other, signifying the joining of their flesh. Now, we do the same kind of same thing today. We use cake instead of bread. It's got to be a little sweeter for us today. But I think the underlying purpose often gets totally lost as evidenced by this meme and this, uh, this uh, picture that your dear future wife, I'm going to smash your face in your wedding cake. You have been warned, future husband. And how many of you did that? <laughs> smash the cake in your, in your, in your anybody? No, 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 everybody was too nice. You did that? Okay, okay. Covenant meal, covenant meal. The tearing of uh, the bread sh- should sound familiar. And the covenant meal, they, they, they would take a cup of wine symbolizing the blood and they would say, this is my blood, which is now your blood. This is my life, which is now your life. And First Peter 1.18 says it this way, For you know that it was not with perishable things, 
uh, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. We have been redeemed, we have been rescued, we have been ransomed with what? It goes on and says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. His blood, it cancels the curse of sin in our life. It breaks the yoke of bondage. And it guarantees the promises of God. It signs, seals, and delivers His covenant with you and me. It's our redemption. It's our forgiveness. It's our confidence. It's our deliverance. It's our healing. See, what I'm saying is the blood of the Lamb is in a category by itself. Is there anything more sacred than that? And yet, I find something incredibly disoriented and confusing about this verse that we're dealing with today because in my mind there should be a period after Lamb. It should say we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, period. But that's not where the... There's no period there. There's a conjunction there. There's the word and. It says we overcome all the evil, all the sin, all the difficulty, all the stuff that comes against us in life. We overcome by the love and life of the Lamb given to us freely and the word of our testimony, the word of our story. These two things don't seem like they fit in the same sentence. It's like these things are not like each other, right? And maybe, though, I think it's because we, we underestimate the significance of the power of story in our lives. Maybe it's because we underestimate the power of our testimony. See, what we see here is we don't overcome without the blood of the Lamb, but we also don't over overcome without the word of our testimony, our story, either. What does that say to you and me? about how important our story is in our life. See, I know it challenges me to be more intentional in sharing my story, both for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So let's be clear what, what sharing our story is and, and isn't. It, it's simply sharing what God is going to do and is doing in your life. It can be anything from a summary of how you came to even want to follow God, but but your story is both this big picture and, and, and the small picture aspects of your life. It can be the, the overall story of coming to follow Jesus, but it can also be about sharing how you were nervous about a job interview and you prayed and God gave you peace and it went really great. Some stories and testimonies can be really dramatic about how God set us free from these really dark places, but some of those stories can sometimes make other people feel like their story pales in comparison. I mean, I know when I started hearing other people share their stories when I was a kid, I wondered if my story had much value. I came to faith at a young age, and my pre-Jesus life wasn't going to be featured in any magazines or talk shows. There wasn't much to do there with that. And, and your story doesn't have to be dramatic or exciting to be worth sharing either. I don't want my children, I mean, think about it. I don't want my children to have to have a dramatic, difficult life story of how God delivered them from extreme darkness. I want for them to have a story of following Jesus and the benefits that come from living a life with God. We may not have the dramatic, exciting testimonies, but we all have valuable life stories of God in our life. How your life story connects with God's story 
is worth sharing and worth hearing. It is real, it is genuine, because it's true. See, one way to talk about our story, our testimony of who God is and, uh, and what God is doing in and through you is to remember that you can't spell the word testimony without the first four letters, test. Those first four letters are always a part of a testimony. The, the way you get to a testimony is to pass a test. And, and understand, not all tests are bad things. We've all had tests in our lives. that They were fun. They were good. They were you know, competitive. They were things we were looking forward to. And they're also the hard tests in our lives. But they're the things in our lives that shape us. That's why James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or tests of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So why are we facing tests? Why does God even let us have tests? It's because He wants us to be mature. He wants us to be complete, not lacking anything. Here's why I think we need to share our testimonies with each other. I think some of our testimonies are, are things of stories of loss and hurt and pain and things that are really difficult for us to verbalize and maybe even intimidating for us to share with other people. But I also think some of our testimonies are, are, are just stating God's favor and His blessing and, and some of the wonderful things that have gone on in life that we didn't feel like we had deserved or we didn't even earn. They just came our way. And testimonies, our stories can be everything in between those two extremes. What's God doing in you now? If you're facing struggle right now, you know what? We need to hear your story of struggle. You know why? Because we need to know we're not alone. If we're facing the same thing or we face it in the future, we need to know we're not alone. I need to know that I'm not the only one who struggles with pride or greed or anger. I need to know I'm not the only one who gets a little depressed from time to time. We need to share our stories because we need to know that you're like me and I'm like you. You know what I think the power of AA is? I, I do think there's power in the 12 steps, but I think a big part of the power is a bunch of people sitting around in a circle in a room sharing their stories of how they fall short and sharing their stories about how they're struggling to move forward. It's the power of sharing stories. See, what happens when you share a painful piece of your life, when you share the mistakes you've made, is that guilt begins to lose its grip on your life and guilt begins to lose its grip on other people's lives around you. That's why the Bible says, confess to one another. Now we can think, but I thought all I had to do is confess my sin to God to be forgiven. Well, yeah, that, that's true, but why does the Bible say confess to one another? It's because we need to know we're not alone. We need help. This is not a solitary sport. This is about journeying through life together. So last weekend we were celebrating our daughter's graduation from college. It was, a, it was three days of, yeah, yeah, who, that's awesome. One less college payment. So three days of continual celebration with friends and family. I can't believe she's graduated. I love her so much. She's actually got a really bad headache, so she's, hide, she's listening on, at home online right now. Pray your headache goes away. During this time, uh, we got to also reconnect with friends we did life with uh, back when we were first starting to have kids and first married. And 
Back then, those friends' stories that we would share, they would share with us, they really challenged us. We, were, we sat with them at a bagel shop, and, and we just were remembering afterwards their stories of how they left and moved on to this new venture and moving their family across the country. It actually really helped Wendy and I when it came to the point that we, th- we felt like God was asking us to leave a really safe community, rich with friends, to move to Oregon many years ago. Now as we're both in different places in life and we reconnect, we get to hear their current stories of how God is speaking in their lives now and they got to speak some just really beautiful encouragement into our lives as well as we sat there just eating bagels in a bagel shop. And their stories refresh and they refocus us. See, relationships, sharing stories change our lives. This verse reminds us that we need to share the miracles, the, the, the deliverances we've had from difficulty in the past, the, the healings we've had. Uh, that's why I share maybe too often about how my dad had six heart attacks in just over a day at age 32. And even though Mayo Clinic said he had permanent heart damage, would die before he was 50, uh, he was miraculously healed when someone prayed for him. And that's why I get to share and I share over and over again about how we went and climbed mountains just to prove he was healed. And he's 85 years old coming up on 86 uh, next month and and he listened to us first service so I already wished him a happy birthday early so I'm a month and a half ahead so I've got it I'm I'm in the bag love you dad why do I share that kind of stuff because I've known this about his history and and how that's impacted me and I've heard lots of other healing testimonies that encourage me to keep on believing to keep on praying you know why Because if God did it for my dad way back then and and secondarily for our family, maybe He'll do it for me today. If God did it before, maybe He'll do it again. If He did it for me, He'll do it for other people as well. And there shouldn't really be any maybe because that's who God is in that statement. But if you're at a maybe place, at least believe maybe He will because He did it for them and He did it for them and He did it for them. See, that's why I share about the dreams that God's occasionally given me in the past that I've, I've written down and I've seen God over the course of years following that miraculously fulfill those dreams in such profoundly accurate ways. That's why I share about my four years of depression. Now, you're probably tired of me sharing that during my grad years and the first few years of marriage. Why do I share that? Because, because of how good God was to me in that time and how He took me through that time and, and showed me His love in such a deep, lasting way. I share that for my own benefit of facing struggles now, but I share it for the benefit of anybody else facing depression or suicidal thoughts or whatever to know God is coming to you even in the midst of that and writing a story. And you can maybe trust that because, because it's my story. And it can be your story as well. God is writing a story in which He invites you and me to be a part of His story. He has the greatest story of all time. Our greatest joy in life comes from seeing God's story being told over and over and over again in our lives and His story being played out in the lives of other people around us. We all have a story about God's work being done in our lives to share, a story of moving from bondage to freedom, whatever that is. It's different for each one of us, of isolation to connection, from fear to faith, from darkness to light, from brokenness to restoration, from confusion to to peace and clarity. We want to be well aware of how we are joining God's story. 
But we also want to be really good at listening for how God's story is inviting other people in their lives. The story in their lives is inviting them to enter God's story. I mentioned it two weeks ago, but it's just really helpful for me to think about seeing people as libraries. So often we we see them as a book. We take a 300-page book off the shelf. We get to know it. We read it, and we go, yeah, we really know this person, but, but there's so much more. People are really a library. There's so many more stories. And how does this story connect with God's story to move us all from slavery to freedom, from fear to faith, from darkness to light? I was reminded of how powerful it is when we looked and see God's story in other people this last week when a guy named Jean Vanier uh, passed away this last week at the age of 90. Some of you may know who he is. He, he is a huge advocate worldwide for the marginalized. In 1960s, he began to visit asylums, uh, uh, mental asylums. He found what he described in those atmospheres as a chaotic atmosphere of violence and uproar. Some of the patients were shackled. Others were just walking in circles. Uh, It especially disturbed him hearing all the screams going on. The scene was typical of many mental institutions around the world at that time. They were underfunded, largely unregulated. These asylums were used to house people with mental illness and intellectual disabilities and dementia and conditions and proclivities that just made them to some in society undesirable. Jean Vanier resolved to build a community where people with and without intellectual disabilities could live and work alongside one another as equals. Now, during that same time period, other humanitarians approached people with disabilities with this philanthropic view uh, as objects of charity. But Vanier actually pushed back, saying, those who have the power, those who want to be philanthropic, are the ones who need the disabled in their lives. For these individuals, the powerless with disabilities were precious gifts, gifts we couldn't have otherwise. And Vanier could see God's story in each person and the gift their story was to his life and to all the lives of people around them. So he created a community called Le Ark, named after Noah's Ark, which has since expanded to 149 communities in 35 countries on five continents. Uh, Krista Tippett, a radio show host, interviewed Vanier, and she said being with him was a transformative experience in and of itself. Just wisdom radiated, was embodied in his presence. She described his tenderness and gentleness as a form of power. As paradoxical and true as the gospel teaching that the Lark communities was built around in their way of life, there was strength in weakness. There was light in darkness. There was beauty in what the world declares as broken. James Martin, an editor, also uh, talked about him. He said, Jean Vanier showed us, like few people ever have, the overwhelming power of gentleness, not only in his ministry with the disabled, but in his voice and his demeanor and his very presence. As we conclude today, There are two actions that I think, if each and every one of you will take, will pay tremendous dividends in every single one of our lives. First, it's a bit of a challenge. A challenge to write out your story, to write out your testimony. And maybe I'd encourage you to use some of the questions that have come up on the screen right now to help jumpstart that. What are the the threads of God's story in your life? 
What are the moments where he's shown up and showed off? Where has he given you a glimpse of his character in life? When have you heard the inaudible but unmistakable voice of God in your life? When have you been covered by his grace and shielded by his mercy when you didn't deserve it? When has he invaded the reality of your existence? When has he invited you to partner with him in work that he is doing around the world or maybe in your own backyard with your neighbor? See, start with some of these questions and begin to write it out. Some of the pain, some of the hurts, some of the things that maybe have defined your life in a way that you wish they had not. And also other things that maybe God has done that you need to fully vet, you need to fully recognize and give him credit for in your life. Include the beautiful things as well as the challenging things. Now, I don't know how long this needs to be. It's probably more than a couple paragraphs, maybe even more than a couple pages. But what's interesting to me, again, it's interesting because I have no idea how they come up with this. The psychological research study concluded that writing down your story will make you 11% happier. Not 12%, not 10%, 11% happier. Just 11% happier. But it will make you happier. So if, if for no other reason, write down your story for that reason. But let me tell you what I think is most likely going to happen. Someone needs to hear your story. Someone needs to hear your testimony. They're either walking through right now or going to walk through something that you've walked through. And God's going to redeem some of the pain and difficulty of your life to help someone else walk through their pain to a good place, easier and better. Second assignment, listen to others for their story. People often don't share their story. So maybe this afternoon, ask somebody to share their story. And then really, really listen. Listening shows you care. I mean, whether they know God or not doesn't really matter. Whether they're convinced of their faith doesn't really matter. If you listen well, you will hear an invitation from God going on in their life to help them move them from bondage to freedom, from isolation to connection, from fear to faith, from darkness to light, from brokenness to restoration, from anxiety to peace. And listen and celebrate those things in the lives of people around you. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you that you are so personal. To love us so much, to write a story and invite us into your story that is so much more grand, is so much more beautiful than we could dream of, think of, or accomplish on our own. I pray that even as we turn to this worship song and, and sing words about your name to you, Lord, your name represents the story of who you are. Help us just to worship that story of who you are and become real to us in this moment as we, as we give you our praise. Father, I help, I help each and every one of us this week to see where you're at, to share our story, to make a difference, to overcome because we remind ourselves of where you've been good in the past and how you're going to be good again in the now. So Lord, we just give you our hearts now as we sing and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.